A few weeks ago, uh, a friend and a friend or acquaintance of several here, uh, Hull Davis of Corinth, beloved, respected in his community, 75 years old. Um, he was running on Saturday morning, as was his custom, with a group of runners on that hot Saturday morning, and he did an extra lap, and he had a heart attack, and it led about a week later, he passed. And he was one of the founding members of Trinity Presbyterian Church, church we helped plant, church where Jeremy is preaching today. And it was very moving in the community. Well, the last Sunday prior to his heart attack, the pastor, John Wyndham, he preached on Micah 6. And... After his sermon, Hull called him over where he normally greets people and called him over and he got John to come to him and he pulled out his wallet and he rummaged down inside his wallet and he found this tattered old leather stained scrap of paper, pulled it out, held it up to John and read it. And that little scrap of paper he'd been carrying around quite a while said these words. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. A week later, a week and a half later, he's with the Lord. And John's looking at that and saying, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. I could have preached on any number of chapters in the Bible. But the chapter that God orchestrated and arranged for me to preach on in his last Sunday of his earthly life before he went to heaven was Micah 8 and his life verse, Micah 6, 8. That God's sovereign, gracious, loving, active, imminent, caring mercy to his people to call whole to his hope right before he called him home, to comfort the family and to bless a crowd of people who were able to hear that as they entered the funeral service was just staggering, staggering. Once again, underscoring the fact that our God is real and that his grace is abundant, that his savior, our Lord Jesus, is active and he is conveying his love and mercy to his people. And he's doing that for you today in the way you need it. And so the story we're looking at, mostly it's verses 31 and 35 of chapter 13. And it's Jesus's heartfelt lament over Jerusalem. Boundless affection, deep wells of affection and also immense sorrow that he feels for them 
even in the midst of their trenchant, stubborn rebellion. It grows out of the story we started looking at last week, they'll have to complete this week. And what it does is it, it heightens the momentousness of the time and shows the, the paramount significance of the Lord Jesus Christ and reveals to us his impassioned way to call sinners to himself. And so let's look at Luke 13. We're gonna start reading where we looked at last week and then move on to the end of the chapter. So verse 22. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the grass withers and the flowers fade this word endures forever. May God write its truth deep in your hearts and mine today. And so last week we treated two points and that the first of that was the question. And that question was, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And I said a whole lot about that question last week and one could say a whole lot more. But briefly, let me just remind you of one of the crescendos of scripture are few saved. Well, Revelation 7, the apostle John just beholds this immense, huge company of saved in heaven. 
He describes as a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Not a few, but a vast host. And I shared with you that I tend to be in line with those notable theologians who would say on the basis of the fact that Jesus is called the savior of men and the land that takes away the sin of the world, that it's not just an absolute large multitude as a group itself, but as an innumerable multitude considered comparatively, that is compared to those who would finally be unsaved. But even more than, than that, when we consider the hard questions of life, and I just have this on my mind as, as children, you know, young men and women are going off to school. When we consider the hard questions of life, and there's a number of them because we are humans and finite in our understanding, we always fall back on what we know about God. We know that God is a judge who has to do right. We know that God is abounding in grace for sinners, and we're gonna see that here. We know that he's sovereignly working his holy good purposes out, and right here it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt in that his dearly beloved son, who he ordained to send into the world for love of sinners, is heading right now to Jerusalem to his cross as he answers this question and in Jerusalem at the cross he's going to offer himself as the judgment before the God who does right in our place and surely we can trust a God like that with the hard questions of life however with all that said it's very important for you and I to see this in this passage the way Jesus actually responds to the question he doesn't go into all that. It's very interesting. It's like Lyndon said to me after the service last week, he goes, well, Jesus essentially says, you're not asking the right question. You see, Jesus, what he tends to do is he doesn't answer the question the way man, a man or woman wants him to answer it. He answers it the way men and women need him to answer it. And so the second point was the challenge last week. The challenge is the way Jesus redirects the question in his response. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. That's the most important thing for you right here, right now. Don't burden yourself with speculating on God's secret will. You Burden yourself with God's revealed will. That is how you're saved, especially how you respond to me right now. Which is to say, how you respond to the gospel right now. So appreciate the fact that Jesus describes salvation by the picture of striving to enter a narrow door. It's a word picture for us. How are you saved? You strive to enter a narrow door. Well, good reformed people are gonna say, you mean I'm justified by works? I thought the whole idea was, well, I don't strive to make myself right with God. 
Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Amen. But you see, save is a, a broad word. It's not exactly talking about justification right here Jesus is. See, salvation, we can say, I have been saved from Jesus's Excuse me, I have been saved from sin's penalty. I have been, which would be our justification. Or scripture can say, I am being saved from sin's power, which is our sanctification. Or scripture can say, I will be saved from sin's presence, which would be our glorification. We don't strive to get accepted with God. It's the work of Jesus, not my work. I receive it as a gift. Yet, true faith in Jesus joins us to him and we enter his way of living and there's a striving as we cooperate with him to grow like him against all the obstacles and difficulties of life such that we can say it's striving to be like Christ and true faith will generate that kind of attitude and posture in the world. It will continue, which underscores for us that salvation is not just something we say, I did that in the past. I made that commitment. I walked that aisle. I prayed that prayer the best comfort for us is I'm continuing going through the narrow door to Jesus, striving to be like him as that finished work of Christ motivates and empowers me to live the Christian life. It's our sanctification. And it's affirmed by this question itself when the question is actually, Lord, are a few being saved? It's that ongoing process Jesus is talking about, which comes up in other areas of scripture as well. And so Jesus says this life of sanctification is a striving, motivated by the gospel, united to Jesus, empowered by the spirit. We start, we continue believing and repenting, putting off that sin and putting on uh, Christ more and more. And that proves and evidences that our Faith is genuine and real. So strive is an intense word. You see it in the word group in the New Testament. One of the words is agonia, you know, agony. It's intense. It comes from the Greek games, athletic contest, where you'd have this intense effort and struggle fighting it out in the games. Uh, one lexicon uh, describes it as straining every nerve to enter. Like you had this picture of a hundred yard sprint and those runners just stretching to get across the finish line. It's that kind of energy we put into our Christian life. Such that 1 Timothy 6 says, fight, agonizomai, the good fight, agon, of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Knowing you're accepted in Christ frees you to practice being like Christ in this world. And it's a narrow door because Jesus is the only way. It's not this broad door with multiple saviors that we select and follow. There's only one way 
the truth, and the life. One God who comes down in the flesh to redeem sinners. And it's, it's narrow because in this ongoing practice of faith and repentance, at the beginning when we enter and in the ongoing process as we grow, it's the idea that we come to Jesus not with, <laughs> we come to Jesus empty and needy like beggars every day, every day. Nothing in my hands I bring. The image I used last week was like moving furniture and you get to this spot in a, in a house where like some big couch just won't enter and you have to drop it and figure out something else to do. And so as we're entering the way of Jesus, we drop our sins. We drop our good deeds as a means of acceptance. We drop our other gods and other saviors. We drop our preferences to how Jesus ought to be, and we just come needy, needing Jesus the way he's revealed himself in the word, offering ourselves to him. Beautiful. Well, to press the crowd around him with the urgency of responding now, Jesus says a couple of things. Well, first, he says at some point, the door is going to be shut that there is a time limit. We don't just count on days to continue as they currently are. At some point known only to him, the door to salvation is going to be shut. And that's unnerving to us, but he's giving us the reality. And see, the door can be shut in our experience if we continue to harden our heart to the gospel over and over and over again, we don't know if or when, but we run that risk. The door will be shut at death as it is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. The door will finally and ultimately be shut when Jesus returns at the second coming and wraps up everything the narrow door will be shut, respond now, Jesus says. You, you had the picture of Noah preaching righteousness, saying, get in the ark. But finally, God shuts that door and it starts raining. That's the image there. Well, the second like summons to, to be urgent is that God looks and says, you know, I'm looking for not just familiarity, I'm looking for response. So Jesus warns of the danger of these people that say, look, we, we ate and drank in your presence, you taught in our streets. You know, in their mind, they had familiarity with Jesus. They enjoyed opportunities with Jesus. They were in his company. The way Jesus says it is he envisions that some were eating near him but not actually having table fellowship with him. They were in the same street as him, but not actually attending to what he was saying in the street. It was opportunity, familiarity, but it never generated this motion of response. And Jesus says, just unveils it and says, well, you never, you never really knew me. It's a huge warning to us who are, are so blessed to have the privilege of the things of God so often. I just remember being a child, and it was the first time I heard this. I know it's an image that y'all have heard, but I remember it striking me as a child with my teacher, as a, just a little, I was a little guy, and he just looked at me and said, 
does being in a garage make you a car? You know, do y'all remember your teacher said that to you? <laughs> and then the teacher said, does being in a church make you a Christian? And it, in my little mind, I was going, no, you're right. Familiarity is when, not what Jesus was looking for. He's looking for response. Well, finally, that leads to the consequences, and that's 28 and 30, and then it's gonna move into the lament. The consequences of not striving to enter the narrow door Jesus says, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. You see, not responding to King Jesus doesn't mean you're simply neutral. It means we've chosen to be an enemy because essentially what we've said is, Lord Jesus, there are other lords I prefer to you in my life. So Jesus paints this painful, traumatic, emotional, physical reaction of the person who realizes he or she missed the opportunity. And so it moves me to think, he's not describing hell, he's describing the missed opportunity. So he says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. And it will be devastating. One commentator says it, inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness. It's that the final consummation has come, and you realize you aren't a part of Israel's glorious future. You aren't among the people of God, the company of the great heroes you always respected from a distance in the past, the patriarchs and prophets. You always assumed you were fine. In fact, You were the rightful heirs to what they spoke of and the blessing they conveyed, but instead of you inheriting that, you're left out and people from north, south, east, and west enter and they recline at table, meaning they enjoy the wedding feast of the land, the great banquet. And it's just heartrending to think what you missed out on. And it will be that way for us as well if we don't respond to the Redeemer the Old Testament spoke of, the one Israel so expected. And this grief and anguish arises from what we missed out on. It's what we want, everybody wants. They're looking for it in a host of ways. It's this deep down inside love. We're looking for love. We're craving love. regardless of how we're going about it. But it's this belonging, fellowship, satisfaction, joy in the great banquet, the marriage feast of the Lamb. His final statement is, behold, some who are last will be first, and first will be last. And it plays out in that first generation, which is what Jesus is mainly talking about, but it's a principle that endures Because many who were around Christ heard the gospel of the Jews, rejected him, and then the Gentiles came in. They lost being the first ones to whom the gospel went. And from north, south, east, and west, praise God, it came to us. The gospel went out. And so all these consequences, everything Jesus has said in this section, it moves into the lament. It moves into Jesus' lament for the lost. And it unveils Jesus' heart underneath the warnings. 
They're not dispassionate, disinterested warnings. Again, it heightens the momentousness of the times, the paramount significance of his person, and the impassioned way he desires the salvation of sinners. And so these Pharisees come, I mean, amazing. Pharisees come to him, we're not sure of their motives. I have my thoughts, but we need to move rapidly. Pharisees come to him and they warn him, Herod wants to kill you, you need to leave this area and go to Judea. And far from cowering in fear, adjusting his plans, fleeing the area, Jesus looks at him and says, you tell that fox? He never talks like that. But you know, John the Baptist got killed not too long ago. Like, I like that. He loved his cousin. But even more than that, he's saying, you know, you crafty, insignificant man, do you think you're gonna change the plans that were forged before the world was created, that I'm gonna finish the work God told me I had to do right here in your territory, releasing people from physical and spiritual suffering and declaring the kingdom of God. I'm on my timetable. It's uncertain, but it's limited and set. And then I'm going to follow my timetable today, tomorrow, the next day, because no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem, and that's why I've come. You won't kill me. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to suffer the judgment of God for my people. That, that control over everything, that Courage and that commitment and that compassion just multiply words and you just see Jesus saying, that's what I'm going to do because that's what I have to do to redeem my own. And that's when Jesus gives this earnest, full-hearted lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you I will not see, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He cries over Jerusalem that represents the whole nation, laments and represents the response of the nation and just exposes to us, if we wanted to know the emotional life of the Lord, exposes to us his tender, longing, aching, caring heart who desires in a heartbreaking way the salvation of sinners. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, repeated. You can see behind this David when Absalom was killed in battle. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would I have died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son. You can see in this Jesus looking at Martha, so harried and frantic and scurrying about and uptight. Martha, Martha, don't be anxious. Just sit and listen and learn, be with me. It's that repetition to sow, to convey his his deep affection and love. It's like he looks at Tupelo and says, Tupelo, Tupelo. It's like he looks at you. Put your name there. Put your name there. Put put the name of the person you're burdened by there. 
And he intensifies this by then describing himself as a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings when there's danger. It reflects that awesome passage in Deuteronomy 32, Moses describing God's care of Israel in the desert and saying, he found him in a desert land and in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with him. This tender and tenacious, affectionate, active, strong, sympathetic care and love for his people. And here for sinners. And all of us have seen, like, you know, birds and chickens and geese. I got geese in a lake where I walk my dog and two of them have these two little chicks, these goslings, and they are so protective when my dog Hank gets close of these goslings. Get them in the water as fast as they can, but you've seen how chickens, ducks, geese get their wings out over their chicks and protect them. Sometimes hiss at you when you get close and God compares himself to a tender hen that cares for her chicks. Jesus compares himself like that. He longs to protect Israel from the impending judgment. And and the wonder of it all, it's not that they're cute, innocent little chicks. He expresses this kind of love for people who have repeatedly through the generations killed his father's chosen precious servants. Jerusalem is a generation of serial killers. They they get an itch to kill the prophets. And right now they're scheming and strategizing to kill Jesus, to do away with him Yet in the face of that, Jesus reveals a heart of incomparable, unrestrained, overflowing, welling up, brimming over, love for them, aching, aching to put them under his wings and protect and care for them. As Paul says, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. And the thing is, what more could he have done? I remembered, what more could he have done? Not just what more could he have said, but what more could he have done? Like he, he, he can protect them because he's going to the cross to protect them from the wrath and judgment of God over sinners. What more could he have done? Think about what more could he have done? What more could he have done for you? The heart, the big heart for you. It puts wind in our sails to think he thinks of us that way. And the tragedy is that he wills to protect them, but they will to reject them. We're up against a place we can't pass. The interaction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but both are true. He wills it, he desires it, he wishes it. It breaks his heart, breaks the Father's heart that they resist his boundless loving pursuit. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth, not coolly as some dispassionate therapist maybe or counselor in some way, but but one that's ardent and passionate seeking change. But the narrow door is about to close. Jesus says, behold, your house is forsaken. 
And it's a scary thing if we've ever looked at God and say, hey, you're fine and everything, but I don't want you involved here. Like, I don't want you around right now. And, and I've done that. Like, I've done that. So I, just give me a break for a while. But you see, they said, God, I don't want you. And God finally says, I'm gonna let you go to what you want. You, you go and do you. Breaks his heart, but he lets them go. And Jesus is saying, look, just like the glory left in Ezekiel's day and judgment came, even so your fate is sealed. You've hardened your heart. Judgment's coming upon the nation. In a real sense, the door closed. Not finally, but the door closed. He said, I'm not gonna be doing ministry amongst you anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the interesting thing is in the triumphal entry, they do say that. There's a way in which just several weeks or months, they actually do say that, but Jesus is saying that's the last week. Like then I'm offering myself up on the cross. So what it ultimately refers to is the final day when Jesus appears in glory as the son of God and all the earth is gathered around him of all generations from the beginning of time and we will all say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the question that remains is, will we say it crying in joy and gratitude as those saved by the blood of the lamb? Or we say it crying with doom and lament as those who rejected the blood of the lamb? And Jesus leaves it there for the people to work it out. And he does the same for us. But all the while behind it, it's my heart is for you to come to me and into the door that's open for you through me and my work on the cross on your behalf. And might we hear the summons, enter in and continue on as the people of God. Amen. Let's stand. <laughs>